Marsha Music. Uh, that is the name under which I write and quote unquote perform. Uh, performing uh, basically means reading because I'm not like the young people that can get up and rap and remember all of their poetry. I can't remember any of mine. I've got too much already in my head to add stuff and let it stay there as a memory. I can't do that. So um, I, uh, I was awarded uh, a Crespi Fellowship in 2012 in the Literary Arts, which is a great honor. Uh, I was also uh, awarded a Knight Arts, um, I'm, a, I'm a Knight Arts recipient, Knight Arts Challenge recipient last year in 2015 for a proposal that I uh, floated, uh, for which I was awarded, and it's called Salon d'Etoile. And I had an idea because I do a lot of talking around town, around you know, our area here. And I thought it would be a lovely thing to be able to have salons in which I basically can sort of like get dressed up <laughs> and, uh, and talk and have other people talk to around us, you know? And it was like, well, that's what I do already anyway. Might as well try to get some money for it. <laughs> But in a, in a, in a less uh, kind of uh, crass sense than that, I thought it was a vacuum you know, that needed, we needed some place that we can talk about things. And we need safe places that we can talk about things. Uh, so that we can have places that we can confront some of these issues that are plaguing us in these urban areas in which we are, blacks and whites are coming together, living together, many for the first time ever and so that we can have safe spots that we can talk, uh, or that I can talk. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm very grateful. Uh, so my salon project, uh, because I'm very busy working around all the time, uh, I didn't adequately prepare some kind of fundraising for this event. Um, the Urban Council and Leadership uh, offered for me to come here and do a sort of precursor to my salon project. My idea with salon is like the French salons and the European salons in the last century and the century prior, uh, in which women primarily uh, were, were the catalysts for talking about uh, the events of the day. Uh, and, and, they, and that is a way in which they held power in those cities, those urban areas in which they were. And uh, because they were otherwise denied uh, political power, but these women would have salons. And these salons would um, uh, gather up the people, the important people of the day, and talkers, and artists, and uh, craftspeople, and people of, of intellectual prowess. And so uh, I love the idea of that, and I wanted to do it here. And so, um, Urban Council uh, offered me a chance to sort of uh, do an introduction to my salon here. Uh, so this is not my formal salon project, uh, but I will be doing it. And I was getting ready to say, I, I didn't set up a fundraising mechanism here, like there's no way for you to donate to me here or anything like that, because I have to raise money to match the monies that I was given by the Mount Foundation. Because we want to have a really nice kind of event when we start doing them because we want to have food and a little music and then a little talking. And so we're going to spend a little bit of money. Uh, so I just want you, in lieu of me begging you for some money here, uh, I would like you to just keep your eye open for when I do start begging. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'll, I may do some kind of a, you know, uh, what do y'all call that, GoFundMe? Uh, a, a social media funding account or something like that. Okay. So, I was born in Highland Park, Michigan. And I've already started out not telling the truth. I was born in Detroit. I was born in Detroit. My father was a preeminent record producer of his time. Uh, my father, his name was Joe Von Battle, and he was the first uh, post-war African-American record producer 
uh, in the United States, as far as can be determined. Uh, he produced uh, many blues and gospel artists uh, and was really quite revolutionary in his time in his record shop in 1945, that opened in 1945. And um, he, uh, he uh, um, had a store on the old Hastings Street. And on Hastings Street was the street of Black Bottom. It was a street that ran through Black Bottom, and it was a commercial street, but it was also the street of African Americans and immigrants uh, to, uh, to Detroit. So it was a teeming commercial uh, and residential street, and later on, more of a red light district kind of street in the evening, but it was a street in which everything was junk back in the day. And the only person here, the people here that would recall that is Dale Pryor and possibly her cousin. Oh yes. Yes. She lived right off of AC. Right, right. And 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 by a peculiar small worldism, uh Dale Pryor is connected to my family in those days. And we just found out that just recently and we've known each other for 30 years. But uh, uh we uh, uh, moved from Detroit. My dad uh, had a record shop, and we lived on uh, John R. and Holbrook. John R. and um, John R. and Forest, sort of. Hancock, John R. and Hancock in yeah. an apartment building. Uh, when that was called Sugar Hill. Mm. And it was a lot of entertainment and bars and nightclubs and black hotels in that whole area. Uh, and then once my father began to become more well-to-do, because he was quite a hit on Hastings Street, uh, my father uh, was the producer of the Reverend C.L. Franklin. And the Reverend C.L. Franklin is the father of Aretha Franklin. And my father produced all of his 75 albums uh, and throughout his entire career and produced the early records of Aretha Franklin and her earliest her earliest known recordings of her voice was recorded by my father. And so he was quite renowned in his time. And this is over a decade before Barry Gordy and Motown. Just to give you a context, beginning in the 19, late 1940s, the mid 1940s up. So that's just by way of some background. So my dad bought my mom a house in Highland Park, Michigan, and that's where I was raised. Uh, after I was a, a toddler. Uh, we grew up in the Halcyon days, those lush green days of Highland Park, in which Highland Park was regarded as a very affluent suburb of Detroit. Uh, I don't know if people really know this, but Highland Park was always regarded as a suburb, and it was known as the city of trees. Just like Detroit was known as the Paris of the Midwest. And it was known as the Paris of the Mid Midwest because of the extraordinary architecture, housing stock, the ambiance, the intense uh, uh, artistic life, and commercial life. So when you were a child and you went to school and you were told that Detroit was the Paris of the Midwest, you, had, you didn't think twice about that. That was a given. That was not even an issue. Whereas today, when you tell people that they're they're startled, they're 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 very startled by that. But it is that is the way that we understood this city to be because of its extraordinary gifts. So I grew up in Highland Park, and I um, uh, grew up during a time of which I didn't know at the time, but in retrospect, I know now I was in the vortex of flight from the city. So my parents moved here in the mid-1950s. And soon thereafter, the whites began moving out of the city. And in Highland Park, however, we have a peculiar existence there. I believe it's because of the, the loveliness of Highland Park at that time in particular. And because of the extraordinary housing stock that existed in Highland Park throughout most of the major uh, um, residential areas, whites did not leave Highland Park as fast as they did in Detroit. And so we grew up with a period of immigration in Highland Park 
that did not exist to the same degree in various neighborhoods in Detroit. Because in Detroit, you had neighborhoods that in June, when school was out, and a black family made the determination to move to a better neighborhood, by September, all the whites in the neighborhood would be gone. That is how profound those shifts were. And I'm giving you this as a background to this point, because this point is not going to be that long, but I want to tell you how I came to this. So I grew up in this integrated, uh, kind of unusually integrated atmosphere in Highland Park, which was not just integrated with blacks and whites, but was also integrated with other people of other nationalities, such as Lebanese, Armenians, Greeks, and uh, other peoples uh, of color that lived in Highland Park. So we sort of had a rainbow kind of life there. So over time, the economic uh, tsunami hit Highland Park because of the abandonment by the uh, major companies that were there. I want to be clear, I don't refer to the leaving of people as abandonment. When I talk about whites leaving the city, I don't say that whites abandoned the city because those are individual choices made by individual families. Even if they're made for the most fearful, even racist sometimes kind of reasons, individuals do not abandon cities. They move, it's just that simple. But I believe that corporations abandon cities, and I, and I try to make that distinction, because I'm always trying to point out here that the issues that happened here in this city were not done by individual people. But they were caught up in a massive move that was instigated by real estate interests, developers, moving people to the suburbs in order to develop the land outside of Eight Mile. When I was a child, if you visited Eight Mile, you were in the country, if you crossed Eight Mile pretty much. Or if there were not country, you were in an area that was the city, but many of the streets were still dirt roads. Mm -hmm. uh, there were no lights in many of the streets. And I'm talking about streets like Royal Oak and uh, even Ferndale and streets like that, you know, near suburbs. So during this time, the intensity of white flight was very great. And, um, and, and we understand now what took place. Uh, over time, the uh, industries abandoned Highland Park and over time Detroit. And, uh, and then the uh, social tsunami began to reflect that. Because then you had the influx of drugs. You had the influx, of course, of crime that came along with those drugs. And you had a basically destruction of not only the economic fabric, but the social fabric as well in many respects. Now, everybody's kind of familiar knowledge what happened in the, since then. On Facebook, which I believe is just one of the most miraculous tools known to mankind, and only Facebookers get it. But I get Facebook, and I get what it can be. And we have a group of Highland Park alumni, Highland Park High School alumni, and we're all black, and because by the time we got to be, you know, later on, you know, there was a lot of black kids. And gradually, white kids began to find their way to our Highland Park alumni group. When I say white kids, I mean white old people. Like <laughs> <laughs> you know, you sort of always see kids in your old age group. Well, there's, there's this group of white baby boomers that began to find their way to this Facebook because they were looking for their Highland Park High School friends. And here we were welcoming these young, these people that we knew when we were children and we had not seen or heard from in over 50 years. And gradually they began to filter into our groups. Well, I say this is an aha moment for Miss Martian, Miss Martian music, because I'm feeling like we can do something with this. This is a very interesting point in history here. And so I began to encourage conversations. And I wanted them to talk about, tell us the story about when you left. Tell me the story. Um, and we began to dialogue in this Facebook group. 
without the characteristic animus and venom that characterizes these type of discussion because I'm not going to be a part of that. I wanted people to be able to talk about how they felt when they left the city as children, as 10-year-olds, who had grown up with all of these people in our neighborhood, all of us kids, and all of a sudden moved away. So, uh, and that conversation started. Out of that, I ended up, over a period of time, writing a piece that I called The Kidnapped Children of Detroit. Because I began to characterize their leaving the generation, my generation, who were children during the years of white flight, I began to characterize their leaving as them having been snatched away from the city or pulled away from the city outside of their own choice or volition because they were children. And they had a hunger for the city all of these years. You know, there's a lot of white people that really have a hunger for this city. They have a real desire for this city. Now, just like sometimes you can break up with somebody that you love and you really can be telling everybody how much you hate them. <laughs> but underneath that, your nose is wide open. <laughs> That's what a lot of that is <laughs> But there has been nowhere for people who feel kind of that way to express a certain amount of pain that took place in being uprooted from the city. Because uh, of course nobody wants to actually bring the actual causes of the moves. And that is those corporations and those real estate companies that made those decisions to drive people out by fear. There were complete campaigns to drive banks <coughs> out of the city that were carried out by real estate uh, companies. They would be on telephone campaigns, telling, scaring people, telling them, you better get out now. You better get out now. They're coming, you better get out now. The black are coming. This kind of thing was taking place throughout the city. So this kind of toxic, uh, venomous kind of campaigning was going on, driving people through fear out of this city. So I began to write about this. And after I wrote The Kidnapped Children of Detroit, which I wrote, I wrote to some acclaim, I thank God for that, I, um, I, 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 at the end of that piece, I talk about whites moving back into the city. Now, I don't say it that whites are moving back into the city. I, 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 I try to catch myself when I say that. Because the whites who are moving in the city are not the same whites who left here. And it's a misnomer to say that whites per se are moving back in the city. It, it, sort of re, it sort of removes the people who are moving in of their humanity. And so I try not to characterize it that way. Although in a sense, of course, it's obvious that whites are moving into the city. But I don't know if we want to say back in the city in that same way. I believe in a precision of language. And I believe in an expression of reality that really reflects uh, respect for human beings. So I wrote that piece, and at the end I talk about whites moving back into the city, the ones uh, uh, that are the children and the grandchildren of the kidnapped children, these young people that are moving into the city. And I talk about how some of them say they come here to save Detroit. But I say they come to Detroit to be saved. And that became a sort of mantra for me because I was trying to express something. That so many are coming believing they are only giving something to this city. But they are really coming here to learn how to live with other people. Now there are a lot who are not. I'm not concerned about them. It's not, my, it's not my issue, it's not my problem. I come to talk to those who come here to live with us. Because this is our city now. This has been our city now for 50 years. And for those who are coming here to live amidst 
African-American people, there are some who want to do the best that they can do in order to live amidst people. There are others who are vultures. They care nothing at all about anybody here or anything else. But for those who will, that's who I'm concerned about, not those who won't. So that's how I got to this point right here. Somebody asked me, Infinite Mile is a, is a, is a, uh, is a literary, um, a literary journal. Infinite Mile is very good, and you can get it online. It's excellent. They asked me to write a piece on gentrification. And, you know, sometimes you just get like, okay, yeah, 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 same old thing, gentrification. And I didn't know what I was going to write. And so I decided that I think I'm going to write a poem. I didn't decide on my own. What happened is that I had wasted three months, and I got to the last week and hadn't written a, a word. <laughs> I, I, just had, I just couldn't think of nothing I wanted to say that was so unique or anything, you know. Um, and then um, a friend of mine, uh, um, I was, we were out walking and she said, I was telling her that I was just not knowing what to write about this thing. And she said, why don't you write a poem? And that, that clicked with me. And so I spent the next few days furiously writing a poem. And it came to me. <laughs> it came to me just like that. And, um, um, and, that's, and that's how I came to do this. And I'm going to write it. I mean, I'm going to read it to you. I, I, I'm hesitating right now uh, because someone may have to read. Miss Emily Gale is back here, and I want to make sure that I acknowledge her. Miss Gale, or she's known as Emily, is a legend in this city because when people were, were reviling the city of Detroit, when there was nothing but contempt leveled against Detroiters, against people who lived here, against people who refused to move, Miss Emily Gale was standing constantly. And she was saying the most innocuous little phrases, say something nice about Detroit. And it seems today, looking back, that that is just like, you know, uh, some people know about little AA sayings, you know, uh, keep it simple, you know, little things like that, and they're just innocuous, nonsensical sayings, but they cut right down to the, to the marrow of a situation. And I want to acknowledge her presence here and how honored I yes. am that she you. is here. I'm working my way back here, though, for sure. So. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, people come back to the, to the D, yeah. you know? But I, I am very honored. Okay. So, this lady said, why don't you write a poem? So I said, I'm going to write a poem. What are you going to write a poem about? 
Well, it started hitting me. What is one of the things that you hear all the time when you're talking about gentrification, when you're talking about the city? And this one thing came to me, and that is about how my friends and I, when we're together talking, you on the phone and you're saying, girl. See, I remember the days when we were on the phone telling one another, I saw a white girl on Woodward, and it was like 10 o'clock. <laughs> because the leading of the city was so profound here that it was actually just astonishing when you would see whites in the city in certain areas at certain times of night or you know young young women young people you know it was just astonishing and so during this so we're coming through that period and so today when we're talking on the phone girl one of the things that would always come up, they would, we would talk about the young people moving in the city and the whites moving in the city, and the first thing would always come up, they don't even speak. They don't even speak. I hate it, they don't even speak. You walk past them, they don't even speak. And, 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 it, and it came up so often, and it came up about people that visited the city, whites that visited the city, and how they, Regardless is invisible. And when I thought about we don't even, they don't even speak. That's what came to me, and that was the kernel of this piece. So now I'm going to read the poem that y'all can't hear Okay. All around Detroit, we talk from shops to congregations. There's much discussion of the city's new gentrification. And all the changes with the folks are moving to the deep. The changes in our lifetime thought we'd never live to see. We talk about the newcomers with righteous consternation, old school exasperation about a disconcerting thing. They don't even speak, we say, when we get on the subject. Our mantra of rejection of invisibility. Our indignation hides the sting of truly being unseen, of being looked right through in our own city. Ralph Ellison, he wrote of this so many years ago. Walk past and never turn an eye to see us. Oh, what pity. Detroit's a place wherein we speak to you in varied tones. Hey, hi, hello, how you doing, what's up, what's happening? What up, though? <laughs> Detroit is widely said to be a big, small southern town. The separation's one or two degrees is what we found. We nod our heads at passers-by, acknowledge other folks. Goes back to railroads underground, rebukes of old Jim Crow. We do affirm and say a word to those whom we pass by. A simple thing, but means a lot to us, so just say hi. From Ottawa, the Huron, and the Potawatomi, then French and Europeans, enslaved blacks came to be free. An immigration influx, then a torrent from the south. The people of Detroit, tis true, we come from many routes. To Old Black Bottom's death and then the birth of Lafayette Park, old strip farms, townships, properties, transitions we've embarked. Horses, autos, racetracks, roads, now slow road rules the lanes. The time has come, it has begun. Detroit sees change again. Newcomers here will walk with us until the coming years. Join those of us who still held on, see how we've persevered. We faced upheavals through the years that caused Detroiters many tears. So now again, we rearrange the lifeblood of this town is changed. Just say hi. Black folks, whites too, whom I've long known, who've lived here for a lifetime, Discuss newcomers frequently, midtown, downtown, and roundtown, who move to hundreds as more each day their price out of the poor, but bring excited spirits to the corners of Detroit. We have to tell the difference from among those who are new, the ones sincere and earnest and respect both me and you. For most of those who come in here, they love this city too. But we all know there's those who just have dollars in their view. Now some deny they gentrify in devastated deep. They move to empty spaces, no displacement vacancy. 
and think that since the building stock was empty long ago, no one's displaced from this old place, so no one's had to go. But don't forget our memories are carved deep in our souls. We lived and worked, took care of biz, then time for us to roll. They pushed us, moved us, crying us out, then time did take its toll. Those barren places all stood dark. We drove by, walked past old facades. Then decades hence we were replaced, just took long years to fill the space. It matters not how long it takes. Oh yes, we've still been gentrified. And here's a new twist to the game. Those newcomers that were so brave, or smart, or poor, or hopeful, strong, or techno hip, or all strung out, or artful, slick, or really savvy, they arrived before big money landed. They get eviction notice too and push from downtown by the new. And now they share in others' fate and seek new rents. <coughs> lower rates, gentrified. Just say We talk about the buildings, all the barren, ragged mastodons, old factories, shops, and corner stores, warehouse structures built to last, ghoulish hulks of prosperity paths, where streets weren't split by overpass. Ghastly end days, totems rise, burn retinal scars in children's eyes. Owned by investor absentees, awaiting days when values rise. Vultures trying just to see the profit possibilities. We coexist with nightmare scapes, the charred and grisly devastated. Built environs, and for our eyes, the Heidelberg becomes a pyre. The ruined porn photographers are clever choreographers of images that skew the way we live here in Detroit each day. Worship ruins like religion, treat our protests with derision. They love that urban that treats us with little care of what hurts us. Just say hi. You see, we live on many blocks that seem unaltered by the car, with neighborhoods of much good care of lovely lawns and hemlock yards. And look, with just a camera's twist, it seems as if we don't exist. But now newcomers have arrived, our neighborhoods get newly eyed. And even so, for sure we know how hard we fought to keep our homes. And though we know we were ignored, our labor was its own reward. For our beloved city rests on many shoulders that were blessed. We had no time to feel bereft. We carry on when others left, just so We speak of the abandonment of the great leaving years ago, plants and stores and factories taking jobs and money flow. We arrived, the neighbors left, not so much fled, but driven out. Across eight miles, pawns in a game of money makers turning land and properties over and over again. Run out, I'd say, by their own fear, manipulated by the hands that instigated profiteers that made the money as they ran. And as they left their busted blocks and fled their grand homes lock and stock, I wonder what it did to us to watch them flee and scorn us thus. Just saying. We talk about foreclosures of the forcing out and moving in. The transfers of this property impacts all generations here. We speak of landlords who deny a yearly lease in many shops and make their tenants month to month awaiting for their big jackpot. We talk about the magic way that blocks and lots of streets turn safe as with the turning of a switch, a raising of some unseen flag on top of newly conquered land where seems they take some unseen stand. They jog and walk and skate with ease in places we don't dare drive streets. We talk of all new words for things. Old hoods are now called villages. They're city kids, not urban teens, beer gardens now, not liquor stores, and serve craft beers and gourmet wines, and yes, they artisanally dine. The nomenclature of the new, yet wonder if they'll speak to you. Just say hi. We talk around, but don't admit our secret joy in seeing them come scout about our neighborhood or moving in. Oh, this is good. Or, oh my God, what's that we spied? A baby stroller rolling by? <laughs> but knowing that as soon they come, that with the 
their move, the trash will run and lights turn on and cops will ride. It's back to being civilized, ignoring all our efforts past where we grew weary with the test. And now we're old and holding on. They act as if we caused the mess. And knowing yet with all our years of taxes, cutting grass repairs, and bills and block clubs, fences fixed, we try to rest but then transfix with years on hold while devil crack made mockery of all of that. We watch the flocks of many friends be commandeered by crack house men. Now that we've had some years of peace, they're switched to drugs for bacchanals. In neighborhoods that we now share, but treat it like we are not there by those who come here to reclaim, as if they've just come here to gain. Just say how. <laughs> now there are those who just reject the business folks who've been on deck. Through all those years, it wasn't cool to shop with our entrepreneurs. Now they so often get ignored. I'm sure, I'm sure that sometimes they are poor. But how newcomers get such play compared to those who paved the way? But yes, I am a celebrant of signs of new development. And yes, it's true that I'm in love with more new shops and shiny stores. <laughs> and watches too, and love styles, <laughs> and new found shops and peacock eyes. I just make sure I don't forget the ones who first did pay the debt. Just say hi. We talk of the newcomers, all their art and youthful energy. Reveal the third world city. They've come to see the day, you see. Like peace for kids, sincere and smart, they come to be saved, I retort. They fall in love with urban heart inside the city's horseshoe park. We talk about the new downtown, the phalanxes of suits and art, the laptops, khakis, polo tops, jobs open up like Belle Isle flowers. So many have a real head start, inherit square feet in the city's heart. Connections and money already a part of their success before they start. Don't get me wrong, we're happy now at all the progress all around, but bitter sweetness for our own, our sons and daughters leaving home. Still taking flight so far from town, they look for work a ways around. It matters not what media says, the renaissance seems not for them. Just say how. <clears throat> We grieve for kids with Detroit lives so ill-prepared to step inside the bubble of the Phoenix rise, but yet we try to empathize. Newcomers step into the place that our young folks were born to take until their schools put on the brakes with opportunities erased. So we must do all that we can to reach to those who raise a hand, to pull them into new Detroit so that they'll have great new exploits. See, some newcomers never lived or worked around black people here. Now find themselves creating birds right inside Detroit streets and curves, in enclaves made just for themselves with coffee bars and foodie shells. They do forget that we're the source of Detroit's urban cool and soul. And just remember we must share in all of this new Detroit flair, from businesses to urban farms, we're leaders as we always are. Just say hi. Some take no time to navigate complexities of diverse race. We're urban background, just a haze, dark corridors through which they race to get to the newcomer space where they can revel in the place of cloistered corners of the D and never try to see our face. They come from lion tigers' dens, and even if they lose or win, they never see us as they pass before and after sports and game. There are newcomers who engage with all Detroiters of all age. I have a dear assemblage of newcomer young folks whom I love. They've rolled up sleeves and lent their skills to push this city past its ills. Enriching lives as they do mine, I'm grateful that I stayed alive to see the rebirth come along as long as we don't push aside the 80 plus percent of us who've lived and worked here all the time. Some new kids who would be a part of everything that's eight miles south can't figure out how to get up close. Some walk past us just saying not. Some come and ask me what to say. A 10 point plan, a 12 step way. To start to talk the Detroit way is simple. Just say hi. Mm. <laughs> hi says you're in the city and you're 
glad to be here with me. Hi says you share this street, this store, this wait in line, stand with me. Hi says you don't fear that we'll ask for dollars or a quarter. Hi says you're not ignoring me, that we are all Detroiters. Hi says you don't mean to offend or make the wrong reply. Hi says you just don't know what else to say, but hi is fine. Hi says, I see you, you see me, we're in the D together. Hi says, we'll show each other how to live. We have the choice together. Help me embrace you, teach you, know you. Welcome to Detroit. Just say hi. All Thank right. so closely what's happening in the city mm -hmm. and when I left some similarities you know I took a space and opened a store and was yes. a laughing stock for moving yes. down where the financial district was and everybody had moved over to the Renaissance Center and we struggled yes. all the way through it but we were always busy so people thought we we're you know had a gold mine in the streets of Detroit <laughs> but McDonald's wanted our space wow. so I went from the darling of my landlord to wow couple of years of court cases and we wow. were evicted wow. and you know we went through a stage of, it was it was rough we were broke and we were picking cans out of the trash can mm. in Belle Isle for our next meal and everybody mm. thought no they they've got lots of money in the bank but yeah. it, so I watched very closely you know when, when we left it was on a very dark note and I always said I was gonna come back and shed light on it you know yes. But it's not new, these things that happen. Right. And I just, I feel for the, I, I just watch as, as much as everybody can support the small entrepreneurs who have been here. Yes. You know, because that, you know, they may look like it's all doing great for them, but it's, it's hard. It and, you know, we, we looked like it was great because it was so busy. You know, we went from very few customers to being the busiest place in the city, right? Mm -hmm. But that I, that was my first lesson of like, yes. Oh, yeah. wait a minute! I thought we, you, you know, yeah. you loved having this here yeah. until somebody came with a with a bigger checkbook. That's right. And right. I just, you just, I just can't tell you how much what I just heard you say all the way through, not wow. just the poem, but everything you shared. It's just mm -hmm. it's real. It's well, real. I, I yeah. It, I you hit the nail on the head, didn't you? I, I just yeah. can't tell you how honored I am to have you here. I just. You just. Um, you, you were a light. You were a light here in Detroit. You should For tell those us what you did. Later, this is Miss Emily Yale, yeah. who uh, was, is a legend, a legendary Detroit lover. Mm -hmm. Legendary Detroit lover. Well, and I learned it from my father. You know, we all learned it. We go back generations, yes. right? And, yes. and uh, he was a real authentic Detroiter. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And, uh, one of the things, uh, you know, I say a lot of things in this poem, and some of them are probably better 
felt maybe if you read the text, but um, I talk about how, uh, one of the things that I realized is how when you talk about direct displacement, um, in this city, because of the peculiar aspect of the, of the real estate and all of that here, uh, many whites, young whites, are the first level of displacement that's taking place. Um, many of, uh, um, of the young whites who began to move in the city some time ago uh, and made their homes here, uh, like in the first years of the techno movement here and all of that, you know, they are the ones that are directly being gentrified out of many of these areas. Uh, which I find to be sort of a very, you know, um, ironic kind of situation, you know. But it is a situation that I believe um, calls for great empathy, you know, that uh, we, should, we should always be looking for this issue of commonality at the, at the, um, at the short end of capital stick. I'll put it that way. We should all be looking for, you know, there's a lot of talk about there being two Detroit. You know, the, the, two, the two Detroits, the two Detroit. There's the rich Detroit that's in Midtown and, and uh, Midtown and Downtown and I guess Courttown and wherever. And then there's the poor Detroit, the disenfranchised Detroit all over the rest. And I don't subscribe to the notion of the two Detroits. I think it's become a trope, a stereotype that is not accurate. Um, I think it denies how many young people that are, first of all, it denies the existence of blacks that live in Midtown. Midtown is still over 60% black. Did y'all know that? Midtown is still over 60% black. I understand that to be true. Um, and so there's a certain level of just not seeing people. One of the threads that run through all of the work that I'm doing is the issue of invisibility and how African-Americans are invisible and how there's this selective sight of us and this way of acting like we don't exist. And so in Midtown uh, and in these other areas with this two Detroit mantra, there's also the idea that all the white people that live in and around Midtown are like rich. And this is not true, because there are too many young people that I'm around all the time, and I have to resist the desire to take them in my house and give them something to eat. <laughs> now, of course, if they did, I mean, they, they'd be in trouble, because I'm not the cooking type, really. <laughs> but I'm trying to say that so many of these young kids that are coming in the city, they are living from pillar to post. They're running from one uh, nonprofit job to another. Some of them got two or three nonprofit jobs because no one will pay anything. And so they're running all around, or they're students, you know, and, uh, and these are not like wealthy denizens. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a class of wealth, you know, that is uh, uh, attracted to the downtown and midtown and all that area. But I said, but we have to be more accurate in speech a lot. We have to be accurate in our pronouncements about things. Also, it denies the fact that there is still streams of affluence in the city, in the outer edges of the city. Because anybody can go through Palmer Woods and tell you, somebody live here got a little money. Mm -hmm. So this whole thing about you know the outside people, the outside neighborhoods are poor, and the midtown and downtown is rich, Mm -hmm. That we have to be very careful about how we talk about that because it's a denial of certain kinds of reality. And I think that the young people uh, that are uh, really struggling, and you know, young people are buying up property increasingly in the city, increasingly in outside of the core. They're 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 buying. Don't y'all know about white people moving in areas that you never in your life thought you would see a white person? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Somebody told me that their, their daughter was moving, they bought a house on Webb mm -hmm. and Woodward. Come on, y'all. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's true. Webb yeah. and Woodward? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Come Webb on, and Woodward. Did I tell you that? No, you didn't tell me about that one. Webb and Woodward. And we constantly always kind of track this. You know, where is the, uh, the uh, penetration mm -hmm. of newcomers throughout the city? Where is it taking place? But 
And people view a lot of this as a real carpetbagger kind of situation, mm -hmm. you know, and it can be, don't get me wrong, it can mm -hmm. be because they mm -hmm. have the monies to do this, where our young people don't. They don't have the money to, uh, to spend, you know, uh, $20,000 mm -hmm. cash, you know, on, on a house to fix it up. Right. You know, they've been mm -hmm. uh, excised from certain kind of opportunities in their own neighborhoods. Right. But by the same token, many of these young people are moving into the city because they can't move anywhere else. They can't buy a house in Bluefield Hills. They can't buy a house even in Royal Oak. So they're taking their chance and trying to settle themselves here. And so I believe that in many ways, we, we have to fight for the commonality amongst people struggling, amongst people struggling, mm -hmm. instead of always assuming that there is a uh, uh, different uh, motivations behind people that are uh, antithetical to us. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the ways I think in the neighborhoods, I think that we, I think here in Detroit, and it may not be downtown, but around the city, I believe that we are in a very special historical period. <clears throat> I believe that in the city of Detroit, we are in a situation in which for the first time in over a century, we have the ability to figure out how blacks and whites and people of other colors are going to live together in this city. I believe it because I'm seeing it happen. And I'm seeing young whites move into the neighborhood with characteristic naivete because they believe that they're safe. And they're safe many times because all the black people are behind their, their drapes looking out for these white kids <laughs> <laughs> that don't have any more sense than to think that they're in safe territory. <laughs> what? They're walking down the street. They're down the street. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> and so these kids, whether they know it or not, and when I say kids, you know, I'm getting older, so everybody under 50 is a kid. <laughs> but, but so many of them are the repository of this vigilance that is taking place around them in the neighborhoods. And the irony of that is many of these elders in the neighborhood are the people who were the most shunned when they moved into these neighborhoods. When they moved into these neighborhoods, they were so unceremoniously unloved. Right. Mm -hmm. They were so, uh, so toxically mm -hmm. rejected. Right. Even people moved in secret. Right. Because even the people couldn't face, even the whites who often left couldn't even face the fact that they were leaving the neighborhood because they knew. But part of it kind of didn't make any sense. Yeah. You know, one of my, one of my friends uh, told me that he could never figure out why everybody was so scared of all the black people because the people that were moving in the neighborhood, they were all higher professionals and everything than, than his people, than, than the whites in the neighborhood. And he just couldn't figure it out. But he said, but they, it was a drumbeat of fear that was being instilled in people to force them out of this city. And so this is one reason why I do not, um, I, I like to believe that I have conversations that are safer because I'm not pointing fingers at you or you because you left. I'm looking at what compelled people out of this city. And it was all about money. It was all about money. So uh, those are some of the considerations I have. But in these neighborhoods, I think it's very interesting what is taking place. Um, and, and it's happening in neighborhoods that you would just never imagine. That uh, whites are moving in, and a lot of it's because of the housing stock. It's so good. And um, um, it's just an amazing thing to watch this transformation take place and watch how these black people in the neighborhoods care for these kids, watching out their houses making sure they're not getting broken into as much as possible. And, and the kids, a lot of times, they don't have any idea that this is going on around them. Right. You know, and, uh, and, and the fact that the irony of it is is that they were, these elders, you know, uh, they, they are turning around and welcoming these young people uh, into these neighborhoods. 
uh, after having been so unwelcome when they moved them themselves. And so that is a, one of the dynamics here of the city. Well, you know, another one of that you're absolutely right about that, and the, and one of the main dynamics of the of the people of Detroit is the, is the humanity of the people mm -hmm. of this city. That, mm -hmm. to me, mm -hmm. is is like almost like the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. humanity of Detroiters is the elephant in the room that 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 gets passed by. It's, 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 it just goes. It just goes. So unnoticed because of stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. You know, and you see it. You see that manifested in. Uh, I belong to a number of uh, Facebook groups. I belong to a number of Facebook groups uh, dedicated to architecture, and particularly Michigan and Detroit architecture. And uh, one of them is particularly good. Uh, Detroit. Uh, Detroit historic Ben's movie. It's a wonderful group. And uh, and they just post pictures all day long of the houses around Detroit. And there's always these comments that are just astonished that these houses are there and they're beautiful and there's and it's obvious that they've been beautiful. I mean, they're not newly beautiful, they've been beautiful for a hundred years. And somebody has been taking care of these houses mm -hmm. all this time. Mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of times, Marsha, I ask, they'll see a house in Carmel Woods, and they'll ask, well, when, when was this house renovated? Yes. In other words, they're trying to figure out. Yeah, it wasn't, they don't understand, but the house has been like there, like that since it was built. Yes. Right. It must have been renovated because yeah. it's in great shape. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and there's no way possible that a black person could have owned this house and to try to maintain it and keep it at its level of beauty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you also see this in this uh, refusal to acknowledge humanity, as you're talking about, mm -hmm. of, of uh, Detroiters, in this uh, this insistent upon showing visitors ruined sites mm -hmm. and never mm -hmm. let them go to see neighborhoods in Detroit. Yeah. Um, I was uh, a fellow this this a few months ago um, for the Ideas Detroit Fellowship. And uh, in which uh, I was very honored to be chosen amongst um, 800 international um, applicants. Uh, I was one of 40 people chosen to, to welcome international visitors here um, and to come up with various ideas for things in the city, changes in the city and stuff. But one of the things that we did was to take them around. And my little group that I had, I'm like, I'm not taking you to the Packer plant. Mm -hmm. I'm not mm -hmm. taking you to the train station. Right, well, right, right. It has windows now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not exactly. you, I'm not taking you to any of those places. I'm taking you, right. and this is where I took them. I took them to LaSalle Boulevard. And mm. I drove them down the length of LaSalle to Boston Wow. I took them on Oakman, oh, yeah. Oakman yeah. Avenue, For sure. Russell Woods. Mm -hmm. I took them to, of course, my hometown, Highland Park. Mm -hmm. That's the center of the universe for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I took them to neighborhoods, and I took them to the neighborhoods in the North End, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, North, the North End neighborhoods, along Boston Edison. And I did that very purposefully. They were agog. They were agog. They could not believe. Their, their entire conception of the city was completely divorced from any idea that black people actually lived well. <laughs> there, there, is, there is a similar kind of dynamic that's taking place as the city gets uh, more developed, like say in Midtown downtown, and which there are a lot of young whites that get mad because the city is developing things. They kind of like the, their good old days mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of when things was towed up. Mm -hmm. Rough and rugged. And rugged and, and gritty. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I have a, a, a lot of uh, differences with that kind of thinking. Um, because, uh, but I also, as I always do, I try to empathize with everyone. Because I'm trying to understand what is this? And it is because that's their reality of what Detroit is and the Detroit that they came to love, mm -hmm. which is some place that they could make a stake 
and they could find a way and all of that. But I'd be trying to tell them, look, I grew up in a city in which we had some of the most significant retail in the world mm -hmm. on earth. Mm -hmm. I'm used to going shopping mm -hmm. in good places. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to go out to any suburb to do that. I'm mm -hmm. used to going down Woodward Avenue and shopping somewhere. I'm used to going places where I don't have enough money to buy stuff. Right. I'm used to that. That's normal shopping to me. That's why you go shopping. You don't always go shopping to buy stuff. You go shopping to look. <laughs> I don't expect to go somewhere and be able to buy everything they got in the store. I like stores like that. Mm -hmm. I think we need retail like that. Now, mm -hmm. I also need to go somewhere where I can just buy a pair of plain cotton panties somewhere. Mm -hmm. I also need that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they need to work on that a little bit. Can we just get some plain old retail somewhere where mm -hmm. we can just buy some basic stuff, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, there are so many, um, so much fucks here. We're, I hope that people here, and I'm sure that you do, or she wouldn't be in a place like this, have an appreciation for the dynamism of the period that we are in. One day we will look back on this and we will understand that we are in the midst of profound change in the city. You know, this one right here, this is my friend. <laughs> Kathy is a farmer. A farmer, like a farmer in the dell. <laughs> I don't mean somebody that's all hip, slippy, cool, and they got them a little oregano plants. I ain't talking about that. She's a farmer. And it's amazing that the city is opening itself up and it's people that are really uh, pushing the boundaries, pushing open, you know, what is possible in this city. You know, it is an amazing thing, and we are living in amazing times. You know, not just because I don't farm and I have no desire, I ain't ready to grow nothing. But then I'm kind of changing. I think I might plant a flower or something. But just because of that, I don't. I don't want to uh, uh, deny her that ability to do that. You know, because people, we have all this land. You know, and it's a, sometimes it's so beautiful. Sometimes when you go in the neighborhoods and, and it's all that empty land, I'm sorry, but sometimes it's just beautiful to me. You know, I hate to see the raggy houses and things like that, but sometimes the bucolic peace in the neighborhood. You know, sometimes these neighborhoods that used to be, you know, sometimes people who have not been here do not understand how hard it has been for Detroiters. You know, just how horrible it has been in some of these communities particularly dealing with the drug trade and uh, and how crack ran through these neighborhoods. I'm talking about, you know, just set up shop and just demoralize and terrorize entire neighborhoods. That happened. And you have these women in these neighborhoods that are just stalwarts, you know, that's just been holding it down and helping to raise the kids and, you know, just dealing with all of these aspects of life, you know. And when you see this kind of thing, and, and you see that now some of that crack epidemic is coming on, you know, it's kind of been peed itself off. I always ask the young people to understand that when you move into these neighborhoods, you know, because don't replace what they just got through with, with now you're gonna come and you're gonna start partying, uh, you know, 24 seven. You know, you said you don't wanna have a regular home, you want a party house with 10 of you live in it, and uh, 10 young people in the house, and all y'all do is get high and play techno music. <laughs> so that's also happening. That's also happening. So, but on the other hand, this is a part of the training that we're doing in figuring out what to do with this type of housing stock. I mean, what do you do with a seven-bedroom house? You know, I mean, a single family not gonna buy it now. I mean. You know, generally, you know, so we have all of these different creative ways to figure out how we're going to live in this city. I think it is a momentous time. I I am excited every day when I wake up. You have to tell me Facebook how I am. Yeah. I'm excited every day. Every time I open my email, it's something else just phenomenal gonna gonna jump out about what's what to happen. 
Um, I, I, let me say something about this woman here, Audra, right here. Audra Carson is, um, now, now listen to this. She is an entrepreneur. Her specialty is rubber. Mm -hmm. She is a harvester of rubber tires that are around the city. And she harvests these rubber tires. And she remakes, she, she, she repurposes rubber tires. She sells rubber tires to people who do industrial things with them, who do repurposing. There are some people in this city that are doing amazing things, amazing things. And, uh, and I think that we're in a very exciting time. Oh, let me show you. I can go on and on. Anybody else got to say something?